We're in the Oak Room at the King David Hotel, and we're also in the Blue Corner. This is the podcast of the Israel Innovation Fund. I'm David Hazoni, the Executive Director, and we're with Adam Bellows, the founder and CEO of the Israel Innovation Fund. And our guest today is an esteemed scholar, yep. presidential historian, Gil Troy. What are we drinking what today, are we Adam? Drinking? We're drinking 2019 Hertzberg Winery Rosé. Great. I'm very, very excited for this. Why are you so excited? Because Gil has a new book, The Zionist Ideas, Visions for the Homeland, Then, Now, Tomorrow. So maybe we can start by, Gil, why don't you tell us a little bit, first of all, why did you do this book? You know how in the presidential debates they get the opening question and they say, but first let me say. Mm-hmm. So first let me say what a thrill it is to be here um, with two Zionist heroes. You guys don't just talk Zionist ideas and develop Zionist ideas, but you're living the Zionist dream. And you're really helping to shape, uh, we could call them, I guess, pioneers in polo shirts. Um, that I like that, pioneers in polo shirts. We were, is that the we title were, of your next book? No, that's, that's the title <laughs> of your life. Um, your that, you're, that, that, you're bringing, that you're bringing Kalutsu, you're bringing pioneering not just to the old kibbutzniking with the big COVID temples, but you're also bringing it to the, the people who are not afraid to wear polo shirts and be stylish and live a, what we call a normal life, but also have a deeply rich uh, Zionist identity. And the theme of the book, really, and the theme of my life for many years has been, how do we develop a Zionist identity? And I call this identity Zionism. That we really have to go from political Zionism, which is, of course, obviously still important, but if the major push of political Zionism is to establish a state, Now we have to perfect the state, but also we have to see how having that state gives us inspiration. And of course, being here in the Oak Room of the King David Hotel, drinking Israeli wine, is a beautiful room, and it captures that whole Altnoy land, but also that move from not just being a Zionist because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the right thing for me. And I've written three books on Zionism. This is my third. My first was Why I'm a Zionist, which is very personal Anima Amin, a very personal statement of, this is who I am, this is, why, this is what I believe, and it was at the height of the Palestinian turn away from negotiation toward terrorism, which we call the Intifada, but I don't like that word because that's their word. And everybody was saying, oh my goodness, it must be our fault. If they're attacking us, and the UN, of course, is attacking us, it must be our fault. And I didn't want to just address the push against the Palestinians with their evil form of suicide bombing and terrorism, but I also wanted to give a positive identity vision. Is that self-blaming response? Is that because we're Jews? It's A, because we're Westerners, and B, because we're Jews. That, in general, it's become a modern Western phenomenon. Once upon a time, it wasn't. Once upon a time, Americans didn't do that. Once upon a time, Westerners didn't do that. But now, in the post-60s era, it's a Western phenomenon, but we Jews, especially American Jews, have perfected it to an art. Is that a post-60s phenomenon or a post-Moynihan thing? Well, it starts in the 60s and then gets much worse uh, following the 1975 Zionism racism resolution and the rise of identity politics, uh, the turn away from what... Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was an impressive liberal, called true liberalism to a kind of totalitarian liberalism. So if my first book, Why I'm a Zionist, was a a personal statement, a a gift from one generation to the next generation, saying, we should be so proud. We're so lucky to be living in this era with the Third Jewish Commonwealth. We're so lucky to have this thing called uh, Zionism and and a, a push for us to go from, as I said, political Zionism to identity Zionism. So that was a more positive, upbeat book. The second book was Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism great, and Racism. A great book. And that was anti-anti-Zionism. That was showing how at this key moment, I call it the Rosetta Stone of the, Zion, of the anti-Zionist moment, that key moment when the Palestinians and the Soviets, in what Moynihan called the Big Red Lie, were able to take the United Nations, which had given Israel the right to exist in 1947. I mean, we had it, but it acknowledged it uh, legally, and turn 
one form of nationalism, Jewish nationalism, the most legitimate form of nationalism, voted in by the UN, open, biologically permeable, because you can, as Moynihan pointed out, convert to the Jewish religion and then you become a part of the Jewish people, so it's not biologically based. And to affix the label racism to that was such an abomination. And we had to explain how that big lie from 1975 grew and grew and grew. And you can smell it behind the BDS movement today. You can smell it behind the media twists today. You can smell it on so many campuses today. So that was an attempt to kind of understand that. And my argument was not just an assault on Israel and the Jewish people, but it was an assault on America and on the West. And Moynihan understood that. And that's why he stood up. So you're saying that the global anti-Zionist movement is essentially a Soviet plot. That what's amazing is the Soviet Union collapsed and its big red lie continues. They, Why is that? Timing is everything. And there were two things going on. One is they injected right at the moment when America and the West and Jews were starting to have this whole question of identity politics and a whole kind of... Did Vietnam? Post-Vietnam. Post-Vietnam. Post-60s. Uh, who are we? What have we done? Racism, colonialism, imperialism. Edward Said, the great Orientalism, theorist, the great the Orientalist race, and the great theorist of Palestinian nationalism, says to Yasser Arafat explicitly, and he writes in his book on Palestine, he says, if this remains a local conflict between Arab and Jew, we lose. But if we can connect this to the fight against imperialism, the fight against racism, the fight against colonialism, we will win. Now, they haven't won. They've actually had a whole series of what we call Pyrrhic, empty victories that only keep them addicted to their own narrow distortion of nationalism and keep them fighting rather than trying to compromise. And by them, you mean the, the Palestinian Palestinian leadership. The Palestinian themselves. leadership. Not every Palestinian, yeah. but the Palestinian, the core of Palestinian political culture. So what, what happened was that right at that moment when America started looking at itself and say, well, are we racist? This is the West race. We're starting to look at the evils of colonialism, and there were evils. And the evils of imperialism, certainly there were evils of racism, but that Israel got tagged with it when it's not racist and the conflict between Palestinians is a national conflict and that shows respect for Palestinian nationalism. And the conflict isn't about colonialism because whether you not think the settlements are intelligent or not, we have fundamental historical rights there. And by the way, when I say maybe we should withdraw from some settlements but not give up our rights, I say I show I love peace more because I love peace so much that I might even consider leaving some parts of holy land, legitimate historical land, for the sake of peace. And if I say oh, I just stole it. What kind of commitment do I have to peace? And what kind of empire are we a part of? But those words were used to kind of undermine and they were insidious. And indeed, we've seen how they were injected into the international bloodstream and they grew and grew. And genocide, so, and genocide and apartheid and all this, this whole language of the South Africanization, the Nazification um, of, of, of Israel. And all along, I continued writing my books as an American historian too, which we call my real job, which we can talk about in group therapy later. <laughs> wrote a book on Reagan. Right. Reagan, Clinton. This third book, on Zionism. This latest book is an attempt to build the Zionist conversation and do a deep dive into the miracle of a bunch of crazy people yelling and screaming and arguing and disagreeing created this miracle called Israel. And in 1959, the great Zionist activist and thinker and teacher Arthur Hertzberg came out with a book called The Zionist Idea. And it had 34 thinkers. And I was given the tremendous privilege and burden, and it was, it was quite a difficult task, to expand it. And so I made three moves. One, from the Zionist idea to the Zionist ideas. Open up the conversation. And I love the S because it's like a question mark. We need more questions, not just exclamation points. Second, I organized it historically. And third, I organized it ideologically. And we went from 34 thinkers to 168 thinkers. But we also went from texts that were three, four, five, six thousand words, because I don't know if you got the memo, but our parents and grandparents used to have the attention span to read long texts, and now we have much shorter attention spans, not just our kids, but we ourselves. So there are six, seven, eight, nine hundred word texts. And I've been blessed. I have 168 co-authors and so many other brilliant writers who I couldn't include. And that was part of the whole problem. It was as much an editing project 
as a writing project. But it's really been a, a tremendous journey. And part of the idea behind launching the Zionist ideas was to have Zionist salons. And I thought, I was at the eve of Israel's 70th anniversary, and I said, you know, if we have 70 Zionist salons in different parts of the world, I'll be like, I did my little thing. We've had over 170 of them in Hebrew and English, in Canadian and South African, in Australian and American. More than 170 wow, that I did myself. That's amazing. That I, that I personally uh, can account for. And I've heard informally of dozens of others. And what does it show? And with this, I'll end and open to your questions. It shows that people are starving for a constructive Zionist conversation. The Zionist ideas shows what you guys understand as well, too, which is that people don't want to live in a world where Israel is only about BDS and Bibi and Palestinians. It was Yasser Arafat's great conceit to make every conversation, not just about Israel, but about Zionism, about Judaism, be about him. And you guys understand that, and you're doing that through Wine on the Vine and all these other major cultural initiatives, which are also ideological and also activist. And I, nerd that I am, wanted to give the language and go back to the, the core texts, but also update it for today. I have, I have a couple questions. I actually was really lucky I got to work with you a little bit on this. I think I helped you with the, um, the non-Jewish. I'm the world's worst marketer, because I knew that if I added a chapter on Christian Zionism, on non-Jewish voices, I could expand my market to the entire wonderful world of Christian evangelicals and, and so many non-Jews who love our conversation. And indeed, Adam, you were finishing your master's and you kindly offered to volunteer and help and you put together a chapter of me. And I've just literally written the book on Daniel Patrick Moynihan. It was an amazing speech in 1975. And Winston Churchill has an amazing speech and Margaret Thatcher. So Adam did this amazing job of putting together the chapter. And two things happened. When I read it, it's a uh, profound moment for me when I when I read it, when he put it together, because I, I, I could tell you this speech, that speech, but there's an experience of reading. And I sat down and I read it. I didn't have any good wine on the vine, but I was self-care. It's okay. Um, and, uh, you're, for, you're forgiven. I'm, I'm, reading the, I'm reading it, and all of a sudden, for all the beautiful pearls of wisdom, it's them language, not us language. Yeah. And then I went back to the original preface of the Zionist ideas in, in Zionist idea in 1959. And Arthur Hertzberg, who actually was, if I can say, deputized by one of the founders of Young Judea, Emmanuel Newman, who was his editor on the project. I didn't even know this when I started this crazy story. Was told, I want you to put together the key Jewish conversations, the key Jewish texts that created this conversation that bubbled over into a state. So if I were putting together a work on the history of Israel, I would, of course, include Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, Daniel Deronda, all these different voices. But because I was putting together and updating the Zionist ideas, the mandate was to tell the Jewish. And so, Adam, I want to thank you for that very important role you had in my intellectual and ideological journey. Right, thank you. For me, the Zionist idea by Hertzberg was it introduced me to all the original Zionist writings, like at least that I could get in one place. Which I, which I think is the best thing about updating the book. But the question that I have for you is when you decided that you were going to approach this, because this is probably the biggest project that you've worked on. I think you worked on it longer than any other book, if I'm correct, too. What did it feel like to dive into the texts? I mean, some of them, the originals are not in English, they're in Russian. Some of them are in, you know, early Hebrew, like uh, when the, in Hebrewish or whatever. Yiddish. Oh, yeah, some of them are in Yiddish. Like, did you ever have one of those moments where you felt like you were with the writer? You know, and, and just was engulfed by the different texts and the ideas. So first of all, you, you, you've identified a very, very profound thing, which is that indeed, that book for so many of us. So many. Um, since it came out in 1959. The book for me also was so profound. It introduced me to all these writers that, unlike Adam with his sophisticated sensitivity to language, I didn't think <laughs> about these different texts in any other language but English. 
the Zionist ideas, right? There was such a defining right. conversation topic that the whole Zionist conversation, until I was in my 30s, I never realized that all these texts, except for Louis Brandeis, in the Zionist idea, had been translated, right? right? And that I was basically, as Chaim Nachum said, kissing through a handkerchief. Mm-hmm. So indeed, first of all, I would never have had the nerve to take on this project. It was the Jewish Publication Society and Barry Schwartz, the editor, who said, you know what, we need an update. And fortunately, they had the right song. That was also... No, it, it was so very it true. Was really, it was really so. a, a profound and a very humbling moment because it really gadolala. It was big, you know, these are huge shoes to fill. And who am I to kind of update the Zionist Bible? I never read the Zionist idea from start to finish. Nobody did. No, Maybe no, you didn't. did. No, you, I never read his introduction. You plugged in, yeah. you jumped, you did right. that. You did. The, the introduction, I, I did read a couple of times because it was marvelous. There's actually one very prominent... A Jewish historian who, when he heard I was uh, updating, he said, well, you're including the introduction. Really? And I said, well, no, it's a hundred pages about Zionist historiography and philosophy that would have worked for our parents and grandparents, but wouldn't work today. He said, Gil, you've joined the Visigoths! You're a Neanderthal! And he sort of felt badly, and then he spent the next ten minutes trying to be nice to me. But, yeah. I, 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 but it, showed how, it showed how profound that essay was. Leon Wieseltier calls it the finest hundred pages written about Zionism in the English language. And so this, this is, these are the shoes I was trying to fill. Yeah. So indeed, just to get to the question, sorry, was that when I added, or for example, updated Eliezer ben Yehuda, which I didn't think it was a great text there, and I'm sitting there reading in the original Hebrew, and then having to translate, and I'd never translated before, and discovering the so translation. This is also your first translating job. Right, I never translated before. So, so she's sitting there, and you realize that translation is both mathematical and poetic. First, you have to do it mathematically, like word for word, but then you have to go back and get the nuance. capture the nuance, the style. How do you get from most famous translation, perhaps in, in Hebrew, from Alt Neuland to Tel Aviv, right? Old New Land to the Hill of Spring. There has to be a poetry there. But also when you're cutting, right? When you're cutting from 3,000 words of Haram to 900, you really have to get into their th- thought and their method and their moment and cut and try to have something coherent. So that was indeed why it I, I thought, oh, this will be an easy project. He had 34 thinkers. We live in a base 10 culture. I'll add 16, 50, I'll be a hero. And no, I had to cut, 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 add, 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 expand to include women. Using Henry Zold and the poetess Rachel and Golda Meir as an affirmative action is just basic historic justice that Herzberg missed. Adding Mizrahi voices, also mm-hmm. basic historic justice. So you're adding, 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 updating, 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 and cutting, cutting, cutting. And it's very hard to do both at once. How did you become a Zionism nerd? Eminence. So I think a lot of it goes back to my family and it goes back to my name. You know, my name is Gil Troy, which means I get great reception at Greek restaurants. And mm-hmm. it means that I would get these students when I'm teaching American history at McGill University and they go, oh, Professor Troy, we have to take off the next two nights. And I'd say, oh, for why? And they say, oh, for the Passover Seder. I'd go, uh, okay, well, will you make sure to have a Chag Sameach? Who is Jewish? We didn't know. <laughs> you know, when, when I was a teaching assistant at Harvard. Well, I uh, mean, you get to a place called McGill. And you right, McGill, McGill and right, you know, and, uh, right, with, with an MC in right. front of it, you know. And when I was a teaching assistant at Harvard and teaching the revolutionary transformation of America, Richard John comes up to me and says, oh, there are so few wasps like us around nowadays. <laughs> and I put on my heaviest New York accent and say, even fewer than you think. But I took that as a compliment because I wanted to fit in. Gil Troy was my way in. But my Christian name is Gilad Troyansky. And my father, who was a good Beitari, wanted us to fit in, but also wanted us to stand out. And, and that, was, that was the message. So from the time that I was a kid, we got these two messages from both my parents to be a part of the American story, who grew up in New York, to fit in, 
but also to be proud of who you are as a Zionist. And I'm the product of a Zionist mixed marriage. My mother was a Havonim, my father was Beitar. Beitar. I myself am in a mixed marriage. I'm a young Judean. My wife is a Hashem Eretzir. Did have, you grow up in young Judean? Yes. Uh, and we have kids who go to B'nai Kiva today. So, but we're, in, we're part of that Zionist movement world. But that's living Zionism. But Zionism to me proves the power of ideas. And the Zionist ideas is a collection that's saying these ideas weren't just the typical nerd just goes deeper and deeper, deeper into that intellectual hole and gets, you know, smarter and smarter and more bookish and bookish. The jujitsu, if you will, J-E-W, of the Zionist movement was to go from the abstract to the real, to go from our suffering to our redemption, to go from the negative to the positive, and to go from the intellectual, from the words, to make it alive. And so, as a nerd, I embrace the term because Zionism also has been the thing that has allowed me to see the power of ideas and the importance of history. I I, say, I don't understand how you can be a Jew and not be a historian because every one of our holidays, <laughs> I, I, right? I, I, right? It's like, that's, yeah. that's what it's all about. Story. But yeah. Zionism has also been my most hands-on, most personal, most achshavi, most present-y, most alive project. And my closest of friends are through the Zionist movement, through Young Judea, which I grew up in, and some of the most profound relationships in my life. I've had through that some of the most amazing activist steps I've taken that I'm proudest of, I've done through the Zionist movement. So the genius of Zionism was to be as deep, as thoughtful as the Bible itself and as Shakespeare himself, um, but also to be a blueprint for a living. And that's what you guys are doing also, finding so those books. The book is, it's in English. Um, it's not aimed at Israelis. Yet. Yet. Okay, you're working on it. Is there a Hebrew edition coming? Well, out? I don't know. <laughs> no, no spoilers. You have an entire country of Israelis who speak Hebrew who are... On, in some sense, living Zionism, but they're almost completely cut off from a, a, a conscious connection to the idea discourse that this book represents, on the one hand. And then you've got the English-speaking world, where kids are going off to college, and they're, to the extent that they encounter Israel, it's either as through pro-Israel activism shouting at them, or anti-Israel activism shouting at them. And you know, or, or for the average adult trying to live a life, raise kids, uh, maintain some connection to Jewish identity by attending synagogue or the JCC. How does this book fit into that world? I mean, I mean, you're definitely, you're aiming at, and I get the salons too, it's a very important thing. How do you get a much bigger Zionist conversation coming out of this book? So that's two questions. So there are two, yeah. there are two parts. So the first uh, very specific answer is that indeed this book was written in North Americans for North Americans as the original was. And that required a North American era sensitivity based on years of both the campus wars and this holier, more constructive mission for, for identity Zionism to try to understand what, 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 what's missing and, and what will speak to the North American teenager, the North American middle age, or the North American uh, golden ager, Jewish and non-Jewish even though I didn't include non-Jews in the book, there's still there's an important art underlying argument here, which Americans especially need today, or Westerners need today, about the joy of nationalism, the beauty of nationalism, the power of liberal nationalism, that nationalism isn't just xenophobic, it isn't just Trumpian, whether you love there's Trump or not. There's a big mistake there's, with fascism. And right, that, that, nationalism. that nationalism is not fascism, and that nationalism can heal. So 
Phase two, and this year one of the things I'm working on, is translating the book not only into Hebrew but into Israeli. And I have this remarkable thought partner, this woman Talia Gordas, who is part of the Reut Institute and um, is now studying for a PhD at the Ben-Gurion uh, Institute in, in, in Stable Care, who is a young Israeli woman with her ear to the Israeli ground. And so we're working together on translating the book in not just word for word. When Hertzberg did it, he translated it word for word because he had created the Bible and he translated the Bible into many different languages. Um, but I want to make this a book that comes alive. And that leads to the essence of the second question, which is indeed, we need a new, renewed, constructive, visionary Zionist conversation in the diaspora. And we need the same thing in Israel. It overlaps and we'll keep the same structure. There'll be many overlapping texts, but there also is a Hebrew accent and a non-Hebrew accent in it. And I've seen it. I've done Zionist salons in Hebrew and I've watched people's eyes and I've seen the same wow. You're right, they live it, but they often don't appreciate it. And all too often they go, oh, it smells of all stale cheese. Zionism is tamshil palm, it's nostalgia, it's not alive, or it just belongs to Bibi or the riot or the settlers. Like, oh no, Zionism, and I love the fact that I'm not endorsing anybody in this particular podcast, but you know, I love the fact that in three elections ago, the Zionist Union was the party of the center left, not the right, because they were saying, we're not going to let you own that brand Zionism. That has to be our national brand. That has to be our international brand. And it's not a partisan brand. So we have to take back the night from the partisans. We have to take back the night from the haters on campus and the anti-Zionists who have turned Zionism into a dirty word. We have to take back the night also from the Israel advocates who have turned Zionism only into the Israel Defense Forces Junior Edition or Nerdy Division and have a visionary Zionist movement that goes back to the core question, which wasn't just how do we have a state, but how do we find meaning in our lives and in our Jewish lives? And how do we find a Jewish renewal through the vehicle of peoplehood, that platform expressed through a Jewish democratic state in our homeland. Can you talk a little bit about, let's say I'm a, a young Jew in America and I don't care at all about the state of Israel. I don't care about international politics. I don't care about any politics. I care about living as a Jew. What does Zionism offer me? So there are two separate tensions here. You're talking about the tension between organization and movement, and you're talking about the, the tension of the dance between Jewish and Zionists. So let, let, let me divide them. So between organization and movement, you're right, it breaks my heart. I once had the opportunity to pass the meeting of the World Zionist Organization, and it looked like the Politburo from the 1950s. And so many of these organizations, um, you walk into the room and you feel like <laughs> the air has been removed. And, and all too often when we talk about the Zionist conversation, it's in rooms with no light. And I say we have to open up. I start many of my talks in, in Orthodox synagogues with students say, I'm suffocating from the Zionist conversation. And I'm suffocating from the Zionist organizations on the right. They've hijacked the conversation and turned it into this advocacy stuff, which doesn't allow for any criticism and what democracy can survive without some self-criticism. And on the left, they go into delegitimization derby. They take any dissent they have, any disagreement they have, and they turn to their place where doesn't have the right to exist. So the Zionist movement that exists is the Zionist ideas. The Zionist movement that exists is all three of us who have chosen to live our life here, not in the United States of America, not because we hate America, but because we love Israel and we actually see that there are things in Israel that could help America and help American Jewry. So yes, I'm not a member of young Judea like I was in my teens or in my 20s, but I'm still a part of that living, breathing organism called the Zionist movement. And even if I don't quite have the right organizational home, I have so many comrades, so many friends, so many heroes who are working with me. And we have this remarkable, sometimes frustrating, sometimes flawed, but ultimately miraculous thing called the State of Israel, which is the ultimate living, breathing Zionist movement. And you walk around Jerusalem 
Everybody else talk about all the problems. Look how many people every single day are starting all kinds of amazing organizations that are just there to fulfill the Zionist dream. One dimension of it, another dimension of it. And and it's Jewish and Zionist. And, you know, unfortunately, the book deadline hit before I was able to include your amazing essay, David, where you talked about Israeliness and Zionism. And, and you talked about also... The only thing you have to do is keep being Jewish. We as Israelis have to take out the garbage and wash the car and serve in the army and keep this thing going in so many different ways. We're working at this 24-7. The only thing you have to do is keep Jewish and you're not doing that. And you're blowing it. This is a historic opportunity, not just to live in Israel, but to build Israel from all over the Jewish world and also to be built by Israel from all over the Jewish world. That's the birthright insight. And so to the young Jew, and I've seen it, I've seen it especially when they come here, you see it in their eyes. Natan Taransky says something very profound. He says, when we were in the Soviet Union in the early 1960s, and all of a sudden in 67, we discovered Israel. There was this light in our eyes. We discovered this thing that had been stolen from us by evil people, the communists. Because when I sit, and I've seen the same thing with birthright participants, with Masah participants, people who come here from America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, they've freely given it up, and I see the same light in their eyes. So I, I when you wanna... say shame on them against our enemies, but we also have to say shame on us. You were talking about the torch and the light and the, the inspiration. And that's that's really what I got from the original Zionist Ideas book. Especially, I mean, that led me to reading the full texts of the texts that were in the Zionist Idea. You know, I feel like you're attempting to do that here with, with bringing in the, the newer writers. But why, for example, has Birthright not taken excerpts from this and given it to every single young Jew, post-trip or pre-trip, so that they have some type of context when coming in. Or, you know, I mean, like, I feel like everything that you've hit on just now is about what is missing and why there are the problems that we have in terms of identity connection to Israel, distancing, assimilation, blah, 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 blah. What's the prescription for that other than creating 500-page books? I mean, like, because there's got to be something out there one of my critiques of the Hertzberg book was for all its amazing texts and, and, and for the, all, the way it brought me into the Zionist conversation, I felt that the structure of the book, I, I couldn't replicate, I couldn't understand. And so I tried to structure the book in two separate ways, which the so first as a historian, I had to periodize, which means I had to put it in some kind of historical order, right? Because he also went from 34 to 168 texts. So you have to give the reader some way of making sense out of this out of this case. So the first thing I did was the first group is those crazy thought trailblazers, the, the pioneers, the Chalutzim. The second group, and that's to 1948, those nudniks who created a conversation that bubbled over into a state. The second, then from 1948 to 1998, the second group is the builders who really took very complicated uh, challenges on and, and created the miracle called Israel. And that includes David Ben-Gurion and Manachem Begin, right and left. It includes Golda Meir, and it includes Natan Sharansky, and it includes Yitzhak Blue-Greenberg. It's, it's people in the diaspora. It's people in Israel. It's, it's, it's people all over the world making this miracle happen. And then the question became, and this is, in a sense, your question, so who are we, this next generation? And I went to one leading thinker, and I said, who are we? He said, oh, we're the nothings. I go, we, we are the torchbearers. And the third part is the torchbearers. I, I, it, it took me a while to find it, but, but torchbearers I love because it's, it, it's, it's a relay race, right? And it shows exactly that alt noi that we are heirs to this amazing tradition. And we have to look back. It's Beryl Katz-Nelson's amazing essay about revolution and tradition. We have to have enough memory to remember and to take the torch, but we also have to have enough insight and power to forget so we can go forward. And what does this generation do with that? Uh, so one of the things I want to do now is take this big, thick book which, and, and make it shorter. 
and and I'm brainstorming different ways to do that because we need a delivery system for birth. We need a video. We, right? we, we need it in video. I was actually thinking even of a graphic novel. And think about it. Once upon a time, your graphic novel that would, would have be been awesome. would have been a very masculine image of the poor, pathetic, uh, beaten down Jew, and then he becomes a big gever, a big macho guy. But no, you can't do that. So now, what if it, what if it would be the Jewish star, the Jewish star in Eastern Europe flagging, the Jewish star in in the Muslim countries being weak and being beaten and maybe being pockmarked from all these stones and attacks and bullets, and then it comes to Israel. I'm raising my hand. It becomes the Jewish star that you know, but also it has six points. And that's the six schools of Zionist thought that I included in, uh, in, in the book, which was the second way of organizing it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Broaden the conversation. Open up from right to left, religious, non-religious. Have red lines. I don't go down BDS Alley. I don't go down If Not Now Alley where they go and they steal places from birthright uh, participants and then turn, them, turn it all, all into a farce. But we also need blue and white lines. What unites us? There's this wonderful tour I took of the, of the new Pilgrim's Path near, near David and the, the, the tour city guide David, yeah. the, in the city of David. A tour guide said, we're, we always say, look, can we agree to disagree? Can we also agree to agree? Right? It's very profound. Can we remember to agree on certain core ideals? And then we can get to the fight. So you guys can disagree with me, agree with me, what you want. We're so focused on the response, which is why Hasbara is called Hasbara, which is loosely translated as defense, even though it's not Haganah, but like whatever. We are not proactively creating an environment for the next generation of Jews to actually feel empowered yet. I mean, like, the last empowering thing that I remember as a young Jew, let's just say I'm 10 years younger, was Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino. Like, that was the most empowering thing that I saw as a young Jew in America. I was like, wow, those are Jews fighting back and killing Nazis like my grandfather did. This is really where we're at, and we're at this very interesting historical moment. So. When I wrote my book, Why I'm a Zionist, I said, a hundred years ago, Zionists brought pride back to the word Jew. Today, Jews have to bring pride back to the word Zionist. On the one hand, we have to, especially in this age of resurgent anti-Semitism, fight anti-Semitism. And we have to be anti-Zionists -anti and anti-Semites, and we have to create a big, broad platform, left, right, Jewish and non-Jewish, with zero tolerance for anti-Semitism. But I got up in front of the American Zionist movement last year, shortly after Pittsburgh, and I said, don't you dare hijack anti-Semitism today and Pittsburgh itself and use it as an excuse to try to cover up our failure to create what we actually need, which is a new, positive, welcoming vision of what Zionism means to us. So we have to fight anti-Semitism and, and bring pride back to the word Jew and fight tooth and nail and, and put them on the defensive and name and shame and we have to be much more effective and I think we need to be very aggressive on the anti-Semitism front but we also, more important, need to stop, take a breath and start saying, wow, you're absolutely right. What is, what is this magic? And look, let's take a step back. There's a soul sickness in the West today. Look at our university students, our wonderful, amazing university students who come and by the time they've gone through the pressure cooker of having the uh, sky-high GPA and the perfect CV and that insane essay you have to write in the United States of America about how I, at the age of 17, have saved the world, and if you don't accept me this university, then the whole world is going to collapse. And they come to campus, and after they register, they go straight to university health services for psychological help. And I, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I, I give this generation so much credit for having the courage that my generation often didn't have to seek psychological help when you need. But there's also a question. These are the, the luckiest people in the world, in world history, who've been so rich, who've been so proud, who've been so free, who've been so welcomed, who've been so cosseted by their amazing parents. 
and yet they're feeling something missing. And I'm not arrogant enough to say Zionism is the only way. But Zionism was my way. Zionism was my way of finding meaning. Zionism was my way of finding community. Zionism was my way of, of finding something that was bigger than what grade I was going to get. And I, as a good nerd, worked hard to get the perfect grade so I could get into Harvard. I understand that world. I understand that pressure. But I always knew that it wasn't enough. And so I, in the most utilitarian way, use Zionism not just to build a state, but to build us up wherever we live. Because we're so lucky. We are part of this amazing 3,900-year-old story of historical failure and success, of historical heroes and villains, and of ideas. Ideas that give us a key to meaning of life. So my Zionism, that's why I call it identity Zionism, is a way to open up that conversation. And the move we have to make, and the move we're making together, is to say, no, identity Zionism is about asking, not only how can I help, but how can I be helped? How can I be a part of this amazing, extraordinary adventure? And I'm telling you, when I speak to university students, and I start with that, and I don't start with a guilt trip, and I don't start with anti-Semitism, and I start with how wonderful Israelis are and how kooky they are. I go around and I don't ask them, oh, who's your favorite Zionist? Because that's a conversation ender. I say, who's your favorite Israeli? And all of a sudden they start talking about Gal Gadot and their grandmother and their counselor and their friend. And we see an Israel that's alive, that's inspiring, that's 24-7 Judaism, 24-7 Judaism that's, that's so interesting, that's so much, and it goes back to your key idea about Judaism and Zionism. It brings Judaism in so many different dimensions. It's three-dimensional. That's our chance. And that's what we're not doing. This has been absolutely amazing. Fantastic. Unfortunately, and I really mean unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank Professor Gil Troy, who has brought to us the book the Zionist Ideas, <laughs> Visions for the Jewish Homeland, Then, Now, Tomorrow, published by the Jewish Publication Society. We want to say thank you to the King David we have Hotel. To thank King David Hotel. And Always. thank you to Hertzberg Winery for the wine. Got to remind everybody once again, if you wanted to do something great in Israel, plant a vine at wineofthevine.org. I am David Hazoni. We're here with Adam Scott Bellis and our wonderful guest, Professor Gil Troy. Thank you all from Jerusalem.